Well, Salt Church, I grew up in a household that was superstitious. And this was my mom's influence. I mean, I, I believed in things, that all kinds of things. I mean, there was tooth fairies, there was flying reindeer, there was lots of stuff, but there was also superstitions related to money. Here's what I mean. You could be walking along, and there could be a penny on the ground. No one's going to stop and pick that up, but my mom did. And, but if the penny's on heads, you're good. But if the penny is on tails, don't touch that penny. Like, that's bad luck. It's just bad luck, so don't touch it. And it, certainly if a black cat walked across the path while you're going down to pick, like, I can't even go there. Like, my mom, like, pennies was a superstition, and she had other ones. But I remember one of them um, that she had that was a, a, a real unique one. A quick story, though. My senior year of high school, this all came to a head because I became a Christ follower. In fact, four out of five members of my family came to know Jesus, like, within a couple months. It was amazing. We all got baptized together. God was doing great things. And I lived in the state of Nevada. It doesn't rain much, but it actually was raining that day. And I was getting ready to go outside, and I went and I actually grabbed an umbrella, which is a rare thing in the state of Nevada, and I almost opened the umbrella and thought, oh my word, near miss. I mean, everyone knows opening an umbrella inside the house, that's bad luck, right? And I was like, whew, dodged a bullet there. And then I thought to myself, wait a second. And here's what I did. I went walking on onto the kitchen, and what I did, I just put the umbrella up, and I just went walking out into the kitchen to talk to my mom. My mom, when she saw me in the kitchen, I will never be like, Paul, what are you? Put that down. You know, like immediately. Some of you are having that reaction if you would learn these things growing up. You know, like, put that down. It's bad luck. And I'm like, Mom, think about it. We're Christians now. Like, I never put the umbrella down. I'm like, we're Christians now. That didn't even make sense. Like, God, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He makes it thunder and rain he cares for us. He's taking care of us. Mom, if God exists, there can't be such a thing as good luck and bad luck, right? And I don't think she even caved. I put the umbrella down, we'll talk. You know, like, I don't know what she said after that, you know, but like, seriously, and here's what I wonder. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if some of us are a little bit superstitious when it comes to God. Is it possible that some are like, well, you know, I've got a Bible. I'll keep it there, right there, my apartment, my house, you know. So good Lord, you know, would want me to have a Bible. I, I better do this. If I don't do this today, like read my Bible in the morning, the day will probably be bad. I better go to church or my whole week. Probably doomed. Probably doomed. Like, I wonder if we too could be perhaps even a little bit superstitious with our faith. What I have learned is that if we think wrongly about God, we live wrongly for God. How we think about God is huge because all of us live out of whatever it is we believe. And in our passage today, we're going to find people, God's people, totally thinking wrongly about God. God's enemies totally thinking wrongly about God. And their lives are messed up, fearful because of it. God wants to straighten us out a little bit. And we're going to see five beautiful truths about God in our passage this morning. Four of them, I'll be honest with you, they caused me to be a little bit like sobered, like somber, like a little bit trembling. But the fifth one draws my heart towards the Lord in such a beautiful way. Guys, open your Bible if you have one to 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's where we are. And as you open there, I want to say this. We're covering four chapters worth. The only reason we're, and I won't be reading every verse from four chapters, right? 
Um, but the only reason we're doing that is because every now and again, sometimes in these Old Testament narratives, you get such a, a close repetition of events and circumstances that happen that we'll just summarize and key in on major themes as we move through those. But we want you to read every verse before you come. And so on our website, saltchurchuf.com, you can always now take a look at the passage that we're going through, like that coming Sunday. Or if you follow us on Instagram, you'll see it will post probably Friday or Saturday so that you can like make one of your mornings of devotions if you're into reading the Bible in the morning or whatever. You can actually do that and come ready for the teaching on Sunday morning. We would love for you to do that. First Samuel 4, let me read the first 10 verses. The Bible says that Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised a, um, such a loud shout that the ground shook. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews camp? When the Philistines discovered that the Ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage and be men, Philistines, otherwise you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelites' foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So here's the scene. The Israelites, Philistines are fighting and in the midst of the conflict, the Israelites start losing and they reason, go get the ark of the covenant. Now, what is the ark of the covenant? been a long time since like Raiders of the Lost Ark was on like right like the Ark of the Covenant was this box in fact I've got a, uh, a, a slide for it it's just an artist rendition of it but the Ark of the Covenant the Bible tells us a lot about it was found in the Holy of Holies which was in the center of the sanctuary the tent of meetings or the temple and it literally was a place where God uniquely dwelt now God cannot be contained in a building He's everywhere, but in a unique way, he dwelt with this object. Inside of the ark was several things, like there were some jars of manna, which is how God miraculously fed the Israelites when they wandered in the wilderness. There was Aaron's staff that budded, another miracle. There were some stone tablets with the commands of God on them. So it, it kind of just represented like these holy objects, and God dwelt with that in a unique way. And it says, that there were, there were clear rules and regulations. In fact, only one priest could go in once a year to even be in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, here's what they said about the Ark of God, Th this object that kind of represented God's presence among them when they were being defeated. Here's what they said. Back to 1 Samuel 4.3. Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So how are they viewing the Ark of God? They saw the Ark like a good luck charm. Go get the Ark, then it will save us. 
Not God. No, it. They thought as long as we have that, God's blessings on us. They were a little superstitious about this. A friend of mine, a, a pastor in our network, Mark Vance, said of this passage, the people thought we need an infinity stone. That's what we need, a super weapon. And if we have that with us, they'll totally be annihilated. Well, it's not what happened. And they got slaughtered. Guys, do we get superstitious when it comes to God? Thinking if I only do this, then God will do that. If I don't do that, God will certainly do this. Do you think you can control the outcome? Do you think, you know what? I control the variables. I control the outcome. I manage God. I try and get on God's good side to where he owes me something because look what I put in for him. Or perhaps like the Israelites, are you not even really interested as in God as your Savior and Lord? Honestly, you're far more interested in how he can help you win your daily battles. I just want God to sprinkle a bit of his pixie dust on my life, kind of bless me. How do I get that God? Guys, we're going to learn a lot about God today. There's five things. The first thing I think is clear. God will not be used as a good luck charm, not for the Israelites or anyone else. We don't work God. God is not managed by us. We don't play him just right. He is free and sovereign and all-powerful, and he will not be thought of like some lucky rabbit's foot. No, God is not going to be seen as a good luck charm. But the second thing, and we're about to see this unfolding from this passage, God always keeps his word. And interestingly, that can be good news when you're honoring God, like this passage says. Bad news if you decide, you know what, I despise God. I don't know if you were here last week, but I taught about Eli, this priest, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were wicked men who just didn't give a rip about honoring the Lord. They, the sons were sleeping with women in the temple. They were all just grabbing whatever sacrificial food they wanted to eat. They didn't care about the ways of God, and Eli didn't warn them, and God's judgment came against Eli. God said to Eli through a prophet, 1 Samuel 2.30, just to remind you, God had said, for those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disgraced. And I said, everyone's going to live on one side or the other of that promise. You'll honor God and be honored by God, or you'll despise God and you will be disgraced. And they despised God and they were disgraced. And in fact, Eli and his sons saw the judgment of God. Eli's, both of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died that day on the battle. And the scripture says, you can read it yourself, Eli, it says he was fat and old, sitting on a chair by the road. And when he heard that the ark had been, not only that his sons had died, that the ark had been taken, he falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. And Phinehas's wife, realizing my husband's died, my father-in-law just died, she prematurely goes into labor. And while she is dying, names her child Ichabod, meaning the glory of God's departed. The ark of God has been taken into to land. The glory of God's departed from us. Because I'm telling you, God always keeps his word. He's not lying. When he talks about judgment or warnings or blessings, he always keeps his word. None of us will ever prove him wrong. He's batting a thousand on everything. He keeps his word, even when it causes us to tremble, because he's calling us into holiness. As we move into chapter 5, I want us to learn a little bit more about who God is. And I keep saying that. Like, what's God like? What's God like? we got to think rightly about God. Look, we have to think rightly about God if we are going to live rightly for God. Did you hear that? We have to think rightly about God if we're going to live rightly for God because all of our life flows from our belief system. 
Listen to how A.W. Tozier said it in The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. We have to think rightly about God. And so the third thing I want us to see so that we would think rightly about God as we head into these passages, it's going to be right here in chapter 5. Look, God will not be viewed as a trophy for his enemies. I, I said God will not be viewed as a good luck charm. He won't be viewed as a trophy for his enemies. Look, he judges both their idols and the enemies themselves. Look at him judging false idols here. 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 5. It'll be on the screen. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, what are they going to do with it? They took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. That's one of their cities. They brought it into the temple of Dagon. That's a false idol. And they placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place, kind of propped him back up. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's heads and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why, still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon and Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. Can you believe that? Look, God is not going to be viewed as a good luck charm by his people, nor will he be viewed as a trophy by his enemies. And that's what they were doing. Hey, bring the ark of God, which literally they're thinking, maybe inside the box, that's their gods. We got it. We got him. We won. Let's bring him in next to our idol because we're stronger. And they come back the next morning and the guy's on his face. It says his, his face he had fallen with his face to the floor. Interestingly, just like in about a dozen chapters, we will see that Goliath, the Philistine warrior, fell with his face to the ground before the young shepherd warrior, David. Fallen with his face to the ground. And then the second time, it set him back on up. The next day, it says, interestingly, in Hebrew literature, this genre of literature that we're in doesn't normally give a lot of details. So when it does, you, we should perk our ears up. And this detail it gives. Both of his hands were broken off and its head was broken off. Here's why. Anthony Campbell said in this, this uh, arc narrative, he wrote, in the ancient world, severed heads and hands were battlefield trophies that assisted the victor in establishing the correct body count. I get it. It's barbaric. That's how they count them up. Chop off the heads, chop off the hands. How many did we kill? Count up the heads. Oh, you want to you second, you know, maybe check your math? Count up the hands, divide it by two. Should be the same number. Here's, here, here's, here's what we're learning. You, you put God next to a false God, he comes crashing the gown, and God's like, in your culture, in a way that you understand, I just conquered him. You're not going to make a trophy out of me. I'll conquer everywhere I go. You don't got to set me up. I will destroy false idols, and now I will destroy you. Look at how he now moves from judging their idol to judging them, his enemies. 1 Samuel 5, 6, and 7 says, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors, which could be translated as tumors in the groin. Yikes. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and 
our God, Dagon. And so the Philistines are like, get it out of here. And they kept moving it from city to city. There were five Philistine cities like, move it, move it. And everywhere it went, it was like, oh, my word, get it out of here. It's now harming us. Look, in fear, finally, the Philistines decided to send the ark back to God's people. And pretty creatively, actually, you can read the account yourself, but here's a shorthand. It was like, let's put it on a cart, and let's give kind of an offering to this God. And the offering is abstract. Five golden tumors. They just shape gold like a tumor. I don't know what that looks like. You know, but then they put that on the cart. And then five golden mice or rats. Maybe the, maybe the tumors came by way of an infestation of rice or mat, uh, uh, mice or rats or whatever. It's like, okay. So they put that on the cart, and they're like, send it back. And here's all we'll do. We'll put a couple of new cows. Uh, these cows, we'll hitch them to it, and we'll, we'll remove their calves from them. And see, a cow doesn't naturally ever move away from its calves. That would go against its sort of maternal nature. But we'll just see if it does. And if it does, that kind of shows us that God was in this. And it says that they let go of these cows, and these two cows pull the ark like they were on remote control by God. Like God was, like, leading them to the ark. Like, like just... And the Philistines are like walking behind it going like, is this really happening? Just to see that it happened. And that's exactly what happened. It led the ark of God all the way back to God's people. They are overjoyed, so happy that they opened the cover. That's where it went wrong. 1 Samuel 6, 19. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go from here? It was a great slaughter. But the question they asked is a question that no one's asking that people should ask. Who is able to stand in the presence of a holy God? So we've learned a few things, but here's the fourth thing that we learn in this text. You don't mess with the holiness of God. You don't. You don't mess with the holiness of God. No one's asking who is able to stand in the presence of a holy God, but all should. Look, Peter, when, when he was in the boat with Jesus, and Jesus did a miracle, and though they had caught no fish the whole night before, Jesus miraculously says, cast it there. They throw the net. It fills to the point of snapping the nets when it clicked for Peter. And Peter realized, who is in the boat with him? The God who controls creation. Peter's immediate response to the holiness of God was this. Luke 5, 8. Go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. Just to be in the presence of Jesus, Peter felt his extreme unworthiness. Remember John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. This is recorded in the book of Revelation. Exiled to this island. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up and he sees him. And what happens when he saw the res resurrected Jesus? Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Listen, the only thing that holds back the fiery judgment of God's wrath against everyone who deserves it is his mercy that has been extended through Christ. Jesus Christ literally, when he was dying on the cross, got in the way of the eternal wrath of God that should send everyone to hell because of their sins. 
and he absorbed the full wrath of God. Who is able to stand in the presence of a holy God? Only perfectly holy people. How in the world could anyone be holy? Only if Jesus was holy on your behalf. And that's what he's done. He absorbed wrath and he transferred his holy standing to his people just through faith. Can't earn it. Don't deserve it. Just through faith. And everyone else who has not yet followed Jesus, it is the mere mercy and kindness of God that they don't immediately die and face eternal judgment. He is holding back what is unnatural, his wrath towards deserving sinners. Who is able to stand in the presence of this holy God? But there is one more thing I want you to see as we just take a look at chapter 7. And while those four other observations caused me to tremble, this one causes me just to draw near to God. And I think both are right. The beauty, the power, the transcendence of God, and the intimacy, the warmth, the closeness of God. Chapter 7, the, the story turns. Let me read a few verses out of it. 1 Samuel 7, 2 through 6 says this. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths as just places of false worship and only worship the Lord. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah, and soon Samuel will offer a sacrifice for them. Here's what's crazy to me as I read this narrative. People don't naturally long for God. Listen, you don't eat for a while, you'll get hungry, you will long for food. You don't sleep for a while, you will get tired, and you will long to close your eyes and rest. But in the sinfulness of our hearts, the bent that we have in us, no one, give them enough time, no one naturally longs for God. David said, I was sinful at birth, the time my mother conceived me. The Bible does not paint a gloriously like good picture of us getting good, uh, like, I don't know, conduct report in school. Like God's saying, no, you've been against me. You, we're obstinate, we're rebellious, we're turning away from God at every turn. We know our hearts. Maybe everyone else thinks, oh, dude, you, I'm sure you're an awesome person. No, we're not. We're not that awesome. We know that we find ourselves moving spring-loaded, as it were, against the greatness of God. And it is only the work of Christ that can begin to convince us otherwise. No one naturally longs for God. And that is why this is crazy. This is a miracle. This is the mercy of God that 20 years after 20 years of godlessness and wickedness and false worship and sadness and grief and being oppressed, finally, almost out of nowhere, they go, could it be that, that we need God? Could it be that the thing that is missing is the Lord himself? 
and they begin to long. They begin to open their hearts to this possibility and long. This is a work of grace. This is a kindness of God. This is mercy. And if you're here today and you're beginning to wonder, beginning to long, this is the kindness of God. Because no one on their own longs for God. These last couple of weeks, I'm part of this class. It's all about sharing Jesus with people and making disciples. And it's been fantastic. In the last couple of weeks, I have met with probably the most religious person I've ever met with to try and share Jesus with them. And maybe, honestly, the most irreligious person I've ever met with. It's crazy. They could not be more polar opposites. I'm not even, I'm not exaggerating at all. One of the guys from the class and I met, we sat down at lunch with this other, this very, very religious figure. Super kind, super gracious, super compassionate, super wonderful. But I'm telling you, he was kind and gracious, but illogical, unmoving, stubborn, hard-hearted when he looked at us after a while of just sharing the love of Christ and said, you will never be able to convince me that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, wait, wait, what did you say? You will never be able to convince me that Jesus is the Messiah. Resolute. On the other side of things, a very irreligious guy. I've been going to Palomino's shooting pool. I love shooting pool. And I've been, uh, I'll just use the name Dan. I'm getting to know this guy named Dan. And it's been um, really fun. Dan's, Dan's a colorful character. Um, but I've been just, you know, talk, talk, talk. And then soon, hey, dude, spiritually, like, what's your spiritual life like? You got any kind of background? And it is like he'd been waiting all of his life for this question. He just, so loud, actually, I mean, it was loud. He's like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in religion. I think it's all a hoax. I think what, and he, all of a sudden, he was ready, like, oh, someone let me in. Someone let me have my sound bite, you know. And he, he got so loud and animated. At one point, he turns over to this gal who was uh, the bartender and goes, am I being too loud? Does this offend you that we're talking about religion? She's like, I wasn't even really listening. And then we got right back into it. I'm like, this is fantastic. This is a lot of fun. You know, I was, uh, and, and, I'm, and guys can bow up a little bit. I'm like, okay, so tell me what you think about it. Well, I think if you call it God, you call him him, I'm going to call it it. I'm like, well, that offends me a little bit, but I didn't say that. But he's caught, and I'm like, all right, so okay, big bang. You got a big bang, you need a big banger. Where do you get, you know, we're going back and forth and all this stuff's happening, right? It's, it, was, it was great. But here's the thing. At the end of it, he wants absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing. Religious, irreligious. This is the condition of the, sin, the sinful heart. So to open up the Bible after all this and go, people began to long for God? That's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. If you're here today and, you're, and you are starting to wonder things like, you know, maybe money isn't the answer. Maybe just having her, having him, maybe that's not the answer. Maybe, maybe sensual pleasure, that won't finally fulfill me. Maybe, maybe it's God. Maybe. Lord, could it be you? Like, God's doing a miracle. Many men and women are finding that Christ is what they long for. But they're just finding him. And you could be one of those people. 1 Samuel 7, 2, let me read it again. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. And when I read that passage, I began to pray, oh God, create a greater longing in my heart for you. Create a greater longing in the hearts of your people for you. Create a longing in the hearts of lost people who don't know you, Jesus. Put a longing in their hearts for you. This is what the psalmist found. Psalm 4, 7, he said, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when they're grain and new wine abound. You see what he's saying? 
He's saying, enjoying God is better than anything money can buy. I found it in God. Psalm 73, the, the psalmist says, when my spirit was embittered, when my heart was just turned against you, he says, he realized, wait, you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. And he asks, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist knew it. Anything on earth, any place you could go, any pleasure you could have, any reward of this life, and he goes, I have nothing on this earth that I want more than God, and I have found my happiness and my joy in God. Even Habakkuk the prophet, do you remember him, who saw all of everything he had getting decimated before him, though he was a holy man. Habakkuk said, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer he enables me to go on the heights. Habakkuk knew, you take away everything I have, you haven't touched me because I have God. Take away everything and I still have everything that's worth having. Is that you? Is that you? They began to long for God and Samuel's like, okay, if you want God, he's a holy God. Get rid of all your idols, which they did. Set your hearts on the Lord, which they did. Worship only the Lord, which they said they were going to do. And then they fasted and they confessed their sins to God. How does the story end? Guys, they're all gathered together at Mizpah. The Philistines saw that and they're like, oh, they're like fish in a barrel. Like they're sitting ducks. Let's just go get them all right now. So they attacked. And in the midst of that attack, Samuel begins praying for them. And guys, how's the story end? Well, Right when they're stuck, here's what it says in 1 Samuel 7, 8. The Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. The last time they were fighting with the Philistines, what was their grand strategy? Go get the ark. It can save us. They thought wrongly about God. And now, don't stop praying to God. He alone can save us. See, they went from trusting in an object and some kind of superstitious way of thinking about God to this is who he is. Pray, only he can deliver us. Their view had changed. Their trust was in the Lord, and God brought about their deliverance that day. God thunders from the heavens. Oh, there's so much that could be said about this. He just decimates these people, and then they do something crazy. To commemorate this incredible victory over the Philistines, they set this rock up and give it the name Ebenezer. Now look, I've helped by naming some children. I even named a dog once. I've never named a rock. You might have. Oh, I got a pet rock. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, okay, that's fine. They na Samuel names a rock. And they just go, we're naming it Ebenezer. And, and you're like, wait a minute. Is that, the, is that it? Is that the song lyric? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by I help I'm come. The verb tenses are all jacked up. But is that what it's talking about? Yes. That's a reference to this verse. They raised up a rock, they named it Ebenezer, and here was the logic. Every time you look at that rock, just remember, God came through for you. God came through. See, we forget God's faithfulness often, don't we? I do. 
every new crisis, I'm like, oh, well, we're done now. <laughs> Dead. And it's like, no, just look back. Like God's batting a thousand. His track record in your past has been perfect. He's got you. You can step into the future. Sometimes it's like that, right? You look to the future, all you see is question marks. Guess what? In time, you'll look back and all those question marks, there'll be exclamation points. God will come through. He'll do it again. But we need things to remind us of God's goodness. They set up a rock, named it. That's going to remind us. Guess what Jesus did? He came, and before he died on the cross, he broke bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup of, of wine. We use juice. He shared it with them, and he goes, this, this represents his blood. And then remember what he said? Do this in remembrance. Do it to remember. You need to remember. You need to remember the goodness of God. You need to be regularly reminded that the center point of all of human history is that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose from the grave. I'm going to have the band come on up. And before we take communion, we're going to get before the Lord. We've been trying to grow in a culture of prayer. And guys, I just want to lead you through a time of personal prayer. Just everyone, this one, we're not going to gather with the people around us. It's just between you and the Lord. And I would love for us just to bow our head. In a few minutes, we will continue worship. We will take communion together. But I want to allow this passage to lead us in prayer. Look, that fifth and final thing is God is merciful and he welcomes his people back. But before we get there, let's just pray through what we've learned. Maybe up till now, you've been thinking wrongly about God. You've been thinking you could manage him, you could manage relationship with him, you do this, he does that. You, you like to control your life, and you like to control him, honestly. You think you could do that. Maybe you've had unnecessary fears, and maybe you've had unnecessary confidence that was never yours to have. If you've been thinking wrongly about God, just right now, say, God, I have been thinking wrongly about you. I've been thinking you are like this, and you are, you're not. Just confess any wrong ideas we've had about God just for a moment. Just pray. These people, when they were ready to get right before the Lord, Samuel said, okay, you need to get rid of your idols. You need to be done with this blatant sin, this blatant false worship that's right in front of you. Maybe there is sin. There's a roadblock. There's something that's keeping you from intimacy with God. You're beginning to long for him, but right in your way is this idol, this controlling habit, this tendency, this area of sin. You just need to confess that to the Lord. Ask the Lord to forgive you for anything he brings to mind, any sin, any controlling idol, habit, idolatry. Deal with that sin. Ask him for forgiveness like they did. And then, God's merciful. He welcomed them back. 
Maybe you are beginning to long for God. Maybe you don't know Jesus this morning. He knows you. He knows all about you. He has you here. Today could be the day of salvation for you. Today could be the day that you say, God, I get it. I know I deserve your eternal judgment, but I want to find forgiveness. Today could be the day of salvation. So what you need to do is you need to right now humbly say, Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. They've been all against you. I deserve your judgment. I am trusting that you lived the perfect life I couldn't, that you died the death that I deserve to die when you died on the cross, that you died in the place of my sins. Jesus, please forgive me. Please come into my life. I long for you. I've looked everywhere else except you, and now I'm coming to you. Make that your prayer right now. And then for those who do know God, oh, your longing is from him. Augustine said 1,600 years ago, our souls will be restless until they find their rest in thee. Oh, if your heart's restless this morning, it's probably you've been looking to the world to do for you only what God can. Let's return to the Lord. And as we return, make communion this morning. As we go into a few songs of worship now, you're going to be able to, to get up and take communion when you're ready. But let's remember Jesus as we take communion. Let the bread and let the drink, let it remind us of the body and the blood broken for you, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Let today be a day of celebration where you see that you're longing for him has come from his longing for you. And may you find joy as you celebrate him through communion. The band's gonna play, and when you're ready, feel free to come on up and take communion.